0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. So Friday, Jesus dies. Sunday, he rises. What happened in between? Saturday. Here's what, but what exactly happened during that 24 hours? Was it purgatory? Was it hell? What does Scripture have to say about it, or does it? Here's what Scripture relates to us about Saturday from Mark 16, 1-2. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So maybe we'd better be, be better off looking for a clue in the 3rd and 4th century creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate,
1: a young minister arrived at his first church. He's a little nervous. First church, I remember the first church I ever served. I mean, you have all this head knowledge, but to actually get out in the field and do it, it's, it's uh, something that takes a little bit of adjusting to realize that your members will kind of help you through it. And that's the experience he found. What was interesting about this young man is that one particular evening, he received a phone call. He answered the phone call, quickly recognized the voice of one of his church members. And she said to him, my father has died. He died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And then there was a pause, and it got real quiet. And then she said, I hope he made it. When he hung up the phone, he thought about that. What did she mean, I hope he made it? And then it hit him. One of the greatest fears that many Christians have is what happens when we die. Tradition has taught us that either you will go to heaven or you will go to hell. And as much as individuals hope in their hearts or express verbally an amount of certainty that they will go to heaven, there's always a little bit of reservation, kind of wondering, really, will I make it? And that's what he caught in that woman's expression, I hope he made it. Today, if you were to survey Christians, you would discover, just like Pew Research Institute did, is that 92% of Americans, Christians, 92% believe in heaven. When asked the same question about hell— that number dropped to 79%. So there's about a 13% of people that believe in heaven, but when it comes to hell, it's like, not so much. But it's a subject that we don't talk about a lot. As a kid, I remember growing up, we were taught not to swear. And for some reason, hell was considered a swear word. I thought it was so cool when I heard for the first time that instead of saying the H word, you could actually say H-E double hockey stick. And that was like, ah, there's a way of saying it. But there's something about it that we just don't even want to discuss or talk about. These same individuals, when they were asked about hell, they were asked to decide, I mean, to share what they thought in particular. If you look at this first slide, It says half of U.S. adults think people in hell are cut off from a relationship with God. And then it gets into specifics. And the two that I would like to point out to you is the first line where it says that those who are in hell experience psychological suffering. The third line says that individuals who are in hell experience physical suffering. Again, if you look at that, 53% for the psychological suffering, 51% physical suffering. So no wonder people aren't excited about going to hell. So what does this have to do with Holy Week and Saturday? Well, as Janelle shared with us, the Gospel of Mark is literally silent when it comes to what happened on that Saturday. For the longest time, I believed that Jesus died on Friday and then, tradition has it, maybe that he rested and then he rose again on Sunday. But that isn't what the church has taught. It was in the Apostles' Creed, which came about 300 years after Jesus was born, that we see for the first time, possibly the first time, he, Jesus, it says, descended into hell. Now, for some individuals, that gives them a great deal of comfort. And for other people, it's actually quite troubling. An early church father by the name of Rufinus, Wrote the following when it came to why Jesus and what Jesus did when he went down to hell. He said the following The intention was not that Jesus would be held fast by death according to the law governing mortals, but that assured of arising again by his own power. Now's where, for me, it gets quite interesting. Jesus might open the gates of a death. It's as if a king were to go to a dungeon and entering it were to fling open its doors, loosen the fetters, break the chains, bolts, and bars in pieces, conduct the captives forth to freedom, and restore them from darkness into light." The prisoners were there to discharge their penalties, but he to secure their discharge from punishment. Artists, especially during the medieval period, had a f- lot of fun painting this imagery. If you'll notice this p- painting up here, you'll see Jesus all in white. And Jesus is reaching down into the grave of both Adam and eve and he is pulling them out they are to symbolize all those who have lived a righteous life up until the time of jesus's life and jesus during his death comes down and he frees them from hell where they have been suffering Jesus proclaims their freedom, he releases them, and many speculate that perhaps this was the beginning of the resurrection of Jesus. That before Jesus physically rises from the dead, he raises those who have died and yet were living righteous lives. Like I said, there's a lot of people that find a great deal of comfort in this. And then there's some that find it quite troubling, including myself. For example, the idea of a God who will take individuals, and if they have done enough wrong things and have not chosen to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, that those individuals will go to hell where they will suffer physically, And psychologically for the rest of their lives is an idea that I have hard to bring in line with this idea of Jesus what he tells us that God is all-loving how how do you bring those two together well many people will say well this justice is that justice to inflict pain on someone for all eternity that's justice? Not only that, but there's individuals who walk away from this belief because they don't believe in hell. When you read the Gospels, what you'll find, I mean, sorry, when you read the Bible, what you'll find, especially in the Old Testament, is that you don't find the word hell. What you have is sha'ol. And we don't have the time to discuss all the implications of what that word means, but it is not the same idea as what we find in our modern day of the word for hell. There are New Testament words that are also used to describe that, but they don't have the same idea. But what's interesting is not only is that true about hell, but it's also true about Satan. If you were to look up the word Satan in the Bible, where do you think the first place you would find it? I used to ask my students this, and many of them would raise their hand and say, Well, Genesis 3, the serpent. Wrong. That's all it is, is a serpent. You have to wait until you get into Revelation thousands of years later when it was written to find out that the serpent is a word that is used to describe a Satan. Another student raised their hand, and you know this student probably had read the Bible before because they said, well, Job. Job chapter 1 talks about Satan. The word appears there. But when you look at it closely, you actually discover that that is, the use of the word there is not a proper name. It's a title. Carpenter. Doctor. Cook. Those are titles. And here in Job, it actually refers to ha-satan, the accuser. So it's not until this what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament that you actually see the idea of a being called Satan come to fruition. So that's why some people, this idea of God, of Jesus descending into hell, they have problems with because that infers that Jesus encountered Satan and they're going, I I don't believe in Satan, I don't believe in hell, I don't believe in Satan. But here's my question for you. How much freedom should Christians have in deciding what they believe or not believe? I mean, if you have no problem with the Bible and all the events that occur in the Bible between Monday and Friday, but what happens described in the Apostles' Creed on Saturday which many people will use texts in the bible to support that idea that jesus descended into hell if you dismiss that and then you turn around and say yes and he rose from the dead how much freedom do we have in our beliefs should we as christians have a core set of beliefs That everyone adheres to? That's why many people say the creeds. They would say at least the creeds we would agree with. However, when Janelle read for us the Apostles' Creed, it said that Jesus descended into hell. The Nicene Creed doesn't even mention it. So what do we do with all this? Is, is Christian beliefs like a smorgasbord, a cafeteria? You just go in and you pick and choose what you want? Or is it a set menu that we give people and say, look, this is what is important, this is what you believe. If you believe it, we'll give you a name tag that says Christian. If you don't believe it, no name tag for you and out the door. Unfortunately, today we live in a society that is doing a lot of that. If you don't believe the way I do politically, if you don't see something as being a justice issue, and I do, we are seeing more and more division in our society. And unfortunately, We are seeing it in families as well. I listen to families will tell me that they have a family member and said, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. So what do you talk about? Because of a fear of escalating and become some kind of a controversy. can we allow plurality within the Christian church? And if the answer is yes, then my next question is, how much? If someone doesn't believe that Jesus descended into hell, can they still be considered a Christian? What about that person who also says i don't believe that jesus literal physically rose from the dead are they considered a christian how much unity is required And a fascinating article I read this week talked about our temperament. How certain people's temperament makes them predisposed to be a believer. They like this sense of certainty in their life. That gives them a great deal of comfort. There are many people in a church where we would call them apologists. They're the ones that if you have questions about what you ought to believe, you go to them, they'll tell you not only what to believe, but why to believe it. And I'm here to tell you that churches need apologists. We need them. We need them to remind us where we have been, why we are where we are. We need them and we should value them. But on the other side, we need mavericks. We need the people that many individuals may look at and call them Heretics. People that are willing to ask questions that make other people uncomfortable. People that are willing to push the envelope so that we might just literally take one step in a new direction. (laughs) I... He was in my uh, doctoral seminar one time, and there was about six of us there—four men, two women—and the professor that was leading our seminar was a Jesuit priest, and he—it just seemed like he fawned all over these women. I mean, I, I, one of the guys would say something, he would be like, oh, interesting. And then uh, one of the women would say something, and it was like, that was just lights going on. And I was like, oh, that was wonderful. And I remember one time after class, I asked him, as we were walking to lunch together, I, I said to him, what, what's up? And he said to me, he said, when I started my education at Harvard, There was not one woman in biblical studies. And so I will do everything I can to make them feel welcome. Now, again, I understand there's a fine line between patronizing someone and actually making them feel welcome. But here is a man who was a maverick, who was willing to just move the line a little bit to make someone feel comfortable. And so when it comes to our Christian beliefs, there are people that are the apologists, and we need them, but we also need the mavericks. People that are willing to ask the hard questions. People that are willing to challenge us. But the temptation we must resist is to kind of thumb our nose up to either one of them. The apologist, because we think they're dumb and unlightened and close-minded, and the maverick because he's a her- he or she is a heretic. We need both. And of all places, it is in the church that we need to learn how to live with our differences. this is like a great laboratory we have here it means we're going to mess up sometimes but it means at times we're going to get it right and if we can learn to appreciate all the diversity that falls under that label christianity then maybe we can go out into the world and demonstrate to a larger audience how we can get along with each other. I'm going to ask you a question. Please don't raise your hand. Answer it anyway, but you can answer it inside. Do you have have grandchildren or great-grandchildren? If you do, how concerned are you for their future. Given the climate we're in, you can make a difference by learning to appreciate all the diverse expressions of human life that is around us, including Christian beliefs. Now it's up to you. It's up to you to go out and choose how much diversity you're willing to expose yourself to in life. You know, there are certain people that go to a restaurant and they order the same thing over and over. There's nothing wrong with that. And then there are people that always wanna try something new There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe we need to learn that.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online-giving Beatitudes Radio empowering people to enrich society.